0: This is southern arch heretic shifting the burden continuing with the proof and discussing the transcendental argument and the ontological argument i'm kit rogers and i have some questions <laughs> Welcome back to my Shifting the Burden series, where the proof for the existence of God is placed into a criminal trial setting, and the burden is on the believer to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. The non believer is presumed correct in our exercise. How does the evidence hold up? Let's explore it. We discussed the cosmological argument and the teleological argument in the past couple of episodes. In this episode, we will dive into the Transcendental Argument and the Ontological Argument. The Transcendental Argument The Transcendental Argument, also known as the Moral Argument, asserts that science, logic, and morals ultimately must presuppose a personal God. The Moral Argument posed by Christian apologists is usually more focused on the moral aspect than logic or science and states that nothing can be objectively moral or immoral without God to define it. The quote-unquote proof is as follows, 1. If God doesn't exist, then objective moral values don't exist, 2. Objective moral values do exist, 3. therefore. God exists. I suppose the key word here is objective. Both theist and atheist philosophers have opined that so-called objective moral values require a rule maker. Then again, our species has flourished partially as a result of our ability to live together in large numbers. It only makes sense that we would develop traits that aid in our ability to live together. Maybe that means we have evolved so that empathy and the general desire to avoid causing pain to another human has become a part of our natural human ethic. Maybe the evidence lies in the general consensus of modern people that stealing, raping, and murdering are terrible ideas. A large majority of the human beings on this planet that live predominantly in large groups would consider theft, rape, and murder bad, or sinful, or illegal, or immoral. Where in more recently discovered cultures, which have been more isolated or were completely isolated, and in some modern, I use that term loosely, theocratic societies, rape and murder may still be viewed as acceptable violence, or acceptable actions for retribution. Or at the very least not taboo or horrifyingly unacceptable in the same way we view it there are some interesting books and documentaries about the initial contact with some of the more recently uh, you know in the last 75 years or so discovered indigenous tribes and the surprisingly by most of our standards violent behavior in those cultures The point being that it appears that humans that live in groups, especially large groups, and or have exposure to other groups, tend to develop rules as a means by which to coexist. Our exposure and intermingling with other groups further define the rules of acceptable behavior. Many of the traits are arguably just learned means. By which to survive and thrive within a group or within the circle of influence of a particular group. Oh, uh, so uh, yeah, so um, you know, it turns out uh, most of the groups that my group came across. Uh, really didn't like the whole rape and murder thing, <laughs> you know, so we cut it out <laughs> of our usual practice, you know, so we could all hang out. It is perfectly reasonable to believe that our brains have evolved to produce a certain balance of chemicals and electrical impulses that result in a natural empathy. There seems to be naturally occurring ethics and morals, even if not completely developed by nurture yet. I guess objective or subjective doesn't really matter if how we naturally react is based upon them. We are just defining them. Even a four-month-old child will stop crying if she notices you're pretending to cry. Why is that? Does she think she hurt you? Is the child just curious? I don't know, but it arguably indicates that even a four month old child's natural reaction is empathy. To be honest, I don't think I've ever spent much time around psychopathic or sociopathic infants because the fake crying trick, in my experience, works every time. I believe natural impulse reactions, even if not considered instinctive, can still be explained biologically and chemically. These seemingly natural human reactions developed as a byproduct of the evolutionary changes and subtle modifications to function that resulted from hundreds of thousands of years of socialization. I guess the argument regarding objective moral values seems simple enough. The apologist won't state it like this, but... I have faith that most believers would understand it basically as why be nice to each other if God doesn't say so and there's no risk of eternal pain and suffering? At least I think that's the basic premise. It's funny. I often imagine how some believers must envision... Wild atheist uh, running around rebelling in any way possible, you know, uh, with no rules to follow, raping and pillaging. Because uh, if you're not frightened or rotten for eternity in hell, then, you know, what's to stop you? You know, if you, if you aren't trying to get to heaven, what the heck are you trying to do? It's as if they believe that their faith is the force field that keeps them from turning wicked, and without it, there would be nothing to prevent them from the devil's temptation. I assume somehow it would instantaneously and without warning be inescapably and unavoidably tempting to rape and murder. Maybe that's not what believers immediately and consciously reflect upon, or even really believe. At least I hope it's not. I've always thought that if the quest for admission to heaven or the fear of burning in hell is the only thing keeping you from committing atrocities, then maybe you aren't such a nice person. And if you are someone who needs threats of eternal damnation or even hopes of answered prayers in order to not rape, murder, and steal, pretty please believe whatever you need to, as long as it keeps you on your leash. えっ? <音楽> If you're still listening at this point, it's probably safe to assume that you are not a psychopath or sociopath. At least, I hope. I didn't really consider psychopaths or sociopaths as a possible audience, but if you are one, please, just do me a favor. Unsubscribe or delete this so that it isn't found on your phone or computer or whatever after you do some psycho shit. I don't want to be associated with that kind of crazy. Thanks. Now, back to the moral argument. German philosopher Immanuel Kant is probably the most famous of the proponents of the moral argument. In his book, Critique of Pure Reason, Kant maintains that God's existence must be assumed if morality exists based upon practical reason. It is basically the objective argument. There are modern Christian apologists that make this argument as well, including Dr. Craig, to whom I referred to in the cosmological argument portion of this series. But the general premise is always the same. The argument is put forth that to an atheist, there just simply can't be any objective reason not to rape and murder. Luckily, we've developed secular subjective reasons. Or as I suggested earlier, maybe we've developed natural objective morals or more specifically ethics as part of our human evolution based upon the simple premise that intentionally harming other human beings is counterproductive to our species' survival and success. When we make someone else feel bad, we feel bad. If you don't, we can't be friends. The Ontological Argument What is proof without the need for evidence? I suppose a philosophical proof that explains the existence of God using only reason. This is the ontological argument. What? No evidence? I'm not sure this argument holds much water when it comes to proof beyond a reasonable doubt in a courtroom, but it needs to be addressed. This argument, or philosophical proof, is not unique to Christians. Its history is as old, well, as uh, you know, history. It exists outside of Christian apologist thought but is still asserted in modern debates and writings by Christian apologists as a viable option. This is not a knock at philosophy as a course of study, academic field, or intellectual pursuit. I'm a fan. In order to address what I honestly find to be a bit confusing, and to express it in an orderly manner, I will try and lay some historical foundation for the argument, but will primarily focus on the Christian apologists' version. Again, I am a simplifier. This is a very complex philosophical postulation with many different approaches and tweaks, including the modern-day arguments put forward by Christian apologists. Although, the general premise mostly remains the same. That said, I trudge begrudgingly forward with an attempt to make some sense of this we don't need no stinking evidence argument without getting bogged down in the minutiae of a purely philosophical spat. The ontological postulate for the fundamental nature of existence was first proposed by Parmenides or at least he's among the first of whom we are aware. Parmenides was a Greek philosopher that lived in a time preceding Socrates, best estimated around 515 BC. The hypothesis morphed in the 5th century BC through the philosophies of Anaxagoras and Leucippus. Leucippus is also credited with the first developed theory of atomism. It continued to evolve and develop through Plato and Aristotle. During the medieval period, many Christian philosophers began relying upon some of Aristotle's definitions to develop their own versions of the argument. One of the most famous and influential thinkers that addressed and criticized the ontological argument during this period was Thomas Aquinas. Old Tommy may be more easily recognized if I attach the Saint Thomas Aquinas moniker, although he wasn't canonized when he hypothesized. Let's back up just a bit. I mentioned St. Anselm of Canterbury in the opening statements portion of this series. St. Anselm was an Italian-born archbishop and philosopher in the 11th century AD. He wrote in his Proslogion, around 1077, what would come to be regarded as the original formulation of the modern Christian ontological argument. He proposes a definition of God as that than which nothing greater can be conceived the bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no god psalm 14 verse 1 and chapter 53 verse 1 can a fool be convinced of his error saint anselm proposed that even a fool can understand his definition of god you know that that than which nothing greater can be conceived What's important is that what is understood exists in the understanding. He uses a painter analogy to explain his further logic and how he gets to the proven existence of God, so I think I'll try and do the same. As an aside, the painter analogy made me think of a close friend and colleague of mine. While cross-examining a co-defendant and an accomplice witness that had already pled guilty, In a murder case that we were trying, my friend called the prosecution's witness a liar to his face multiple times. After the prosecutor stood and objected, asking the judge to order my friend to cease from referring to the witness as a liar, my pal, may he rest in peace, turned to the witness. If I paint, I'm a painter. So if you lie, you're a... And he shuffled his feet. and He held his hand out to the witness as if passing off the punchline to his partner, while at the same time staring at the jury with a sly grin. And I swear he winked. The witness just stared at him and responded, "Liar." We won that trial, and giggled like schoolchildren the entire drive home. I miss my friend. Sorry. I digress again. Paint me as I am, warts and all, Cromwell. Brave soul, twere well if all the same would say, and artists aim their patrons wish to obey what signifies a wart or in a scar leave both skilled hand and paint us as we are the crow feet paint the wrinkles on the brow the hollow cheek the form inclined to bow the tear dimmed eye the hair well streaked with gray the hardened hand begrimed with soot and clay And if you use the seer's revealing glass, remember this. All flesh is as the grass. Joseph Horatio Chant, 1915 Now back to St. Anselm. I think to better define his dichotomy of understanding and reality... St. Anselm refers to the painter's plan as existing in the painter's understanding prior to the execution of applying the paint to canvas and bringing the painting into reality, just as that than which nothing greater can be conceived exists in the understanding of even the fool. It is greater to exist in reality and understanding than merely in understanding. So, if that than which nothing greater can be conceived only exists in the understanding, something greater can be conceived. Something that exists in understanding and reality. And that is a contradiction. Therefore, that than which nothing greater can be conceived must exist in reality. Got that? Let's try it replacing God for St. Anselm's definition of God. God exists in the understanding of even the fool. It is greater to exist in reality and understanding. So, if God only exists in the understanding, something greater can be conceived, which is a contradiction because we've already defined God as that than which nothing greater can be conceived. Therefore, God must exist in reality. The problem with this approach is that with a few tweaks and rearrangements of emphasis it can apply to anything imaginable. I can imagine an evil for which no greater evil can be conceived. I can imagine it an mad- alternate universe where every individual's most ridiculous desire is fulfilled. Happiness and joy are served for breakfast every morning. Where I get to do exactly what I want, what I wear, where I'm, when I'm, when i when i Rains, cotton, candy, and jelly beans. Jelly beans, jelly Never stick, And I can't get fat, get fat, get fat. I feel like St. Anselm, if he really put his mind to it, could philosophize that into reality for me. I'm sure some philosophers and students of philosophy are cringing right now and thinking, Jesus, this guy just doesn't get it. Well, relax. I think I get it enough. I get it enough to know that arranging words and thoughts to form conundrums can be fun. It's not proof most assuredly not evidence. I intimated earlier that modern Christian apologists use this argument, but I haven't noticed that they stray very much from St. Anselm's original argument in any concrete manner. And moreover, the ontological argument is usually only one of several arguments put forward, and rarely the one of emphasis, much less the online bozo's hidden gem of a gotcha argument Pulled from his proof holster as he draws down on his debate opponent in, in an attempt to thwart the ever encroaching atheist hordes, best form some reasonable arguments. Oh, we're oh, coming we're for coming. your children, children! The atheist leader proclaimed as he galloped off on his snorting evil steed, maniacally laughing into the dark night. There seem to be more critiques of the ontological argument than commentary from proponents. Critics include St. Thomas Aquinas and Immanuel Kant, whom I've already mentioned, and many others that you're welcome to Google. There are as many critiques as there are versions of this argument. I wanted to address it because I think it's important to understand the proof that believers have available to them for presentation. And because I stated earlier that I would address it. In this case, with this argument, there is literally no observable proof. The entire enterprise is based upon the premise That proof of God can be made without relying upon observations of the natural world. In other words, it offers zero evidence. Next time we dig into the Christological argument, finally, some Bible and some Jesus. Love you. Mean it.